Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is a sort of bonus warm-up conversation with our guest, Fahad Bishara. Fahad, welcome welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Big fan. Fahad Bishara is an assistant professor of history at University of Virginia, where I am also an assistant professor of history. Uh, and in our full episode, you can hear an interview with Fahad about his book entitled A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780 to 1950. Uh, in this warm-up conversation, we're actually just going to sort of set the stage of that Western Indian Ocean world during the 18th and 19th centuries uh, in a conversation under the heading Oman and the Indian Ocean World. Uh, we haven't covered the geography of Oman that much on the podcast. We're already working with a large geography. And so since we've got Fahad, a specialist in the region, in the room, we thought we'd just start off by talking about this fascinating uh, interconnected world of the Western Indian Ocean. You know, it's it's funny. Every time one Googles the Omani Empire, Oman Empire, uh, the Google results come up as Ottoman. And uh, and Oman is, I suppose, just Ottoman without the OTT. This is autocorrect to Ottoman. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, we're constantly laboring in the shadow of the Ottoman Empire, All right. uh, trying to carve out a space for ourselves, the, you know, the two or three people who are thinking about the Omani Empire and the Indian Ocean. Uh, but to give a sense of where Amman is for uh, listeners who might not even know where mm-hmm. to find it on a map, it's uh, the southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, today, uh, it, what, it takes up virtually the entire southeastern corner of the Arabian Peninsula. Historically, when one talks about Amman, we're not talking about the entirety of that area. Really, we're just talking about the coast, uh, Muscat uh, and a few other port cities around there. And... Much like a lot of the other places in the in the Gulf, uh, Oman had very much a maritime orientation for the bulk of its history, mm-hmm. uh, and so to think of Omani history nece- necessarily means thinking about the rest of the Gulf, of course. Uh, but uh, for Oman in particular, it means thinking about East Africa. The Omanis, at various points, starting in the mid 1600s. Um, had various possessions down the East African coast, extending all the way down to uh, Mombasa, which is today in on the coast of Kenya, uh, mm-hmm. and then um, Zanzibar, uh, which is an island off of the coast of what's today Tanzania. A bit of trivia for you. The name right. Tanzania comes from the joining of Tanganyika and Zanzibar. Huh. That's how you get it. It's Tanzania. Huh. Um, but um, the Omanis had... Uh, at different points, ruled over different parts of that coast, uh, stationed different governors there. It was a sort of loose, webby kind of empire mm-hmm. uh, for the bulk of the 1600s and uh, 1700s under the Ya'rubi dynasty, who uh, one might credit with dislodging the Portuguese, actually, from much of the Western Indian Ocean uh, during the 1600s. Um, and uh, the, Ya'rubis, uh, the Ya'rubi dynasty basically fell apart uh, in the mid 1700s, due to sort of family struggles, these sort of dynastic struggles that we're all sort of familiar with, uh, and uh, by the sort of end of the 1700s, towards the end of the 1700s, we see the emergence uh, of the Busaidi dynasty, uh, and the Busaidi sultans of Oman extend their control, or at least attempt to extend their control over former Yarubi holdings down the east coast of Africa and into other places. Uh, Bandar Abbas in Iran, which they leased from the Shah, uh, and then Gwadar, which is now on the coast of Pakistan. 
and uh, do it with varying levels of success. But certainly by the last two decades of the 1800s, we see a, a sort of Busaidi Omani presence in the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, so thinking about Oman in early modern history and also modern history necessitates thinking about the Indian Ocean. And so I was drawn to the study of the place. Yeah, and this is uh, a geography that uh, is familiar to historians who study sort of maritime connections or oceans uh, in in world history. But for people who are sort of thinking about history from sort of nation-state constructs and sort of these um, more um, conventionally bounded geographical constructs that uh, historians often work with, uh, what you've described sounds a bit uh, strange, that you have some settlements on the coast of, of, of modern-day Oman uh, with very strong connections to uh, other cities along the coast of East Africa and, and in the and in South Asia, and yet very little connection to maybe what's going on on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula in, in for example, modern-day Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Omanis did have connections to, to what's going on in, in Saudi Arabia and, and other parts of the, uh, I suppose, what we would consider to be the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But thinking from sort of the land-based paradigms and the nation-state paradigms uh, that have uh, so thoroughly sort of shaped our historical imagination, right. um, Oman and, to be honest, the bulk of, uh, of the Gulf is really peripheral. I mean, thinking right. from a Middle Eastern studies framework, there's really not very much to say about Oman. And so to understand the sort of the, the full dimensions of Omani history, to really fully appreciate it, uh, one has to uh, reorient themselves uh, towards the ocean, which is not to say that, um, that maritime historians have even given Oman its due. Uh, I think uh, Indian Ocean history um, which is still a, a growing field. Uh, there's there's not a sense of what to do with places like Oman and how to make sense of of Arabs, especially in the Indian Ocean. Um, Indian Ocean history, when it, it when it first started, it was essentially just another uh, sort of imperial history, another imperial arena, uh, and uh, it's not really shaken off that legacy in any meaningful way. Uh, there are, of course, uh, really important works that have sort of uh, flipped the script a little bit. Uh, my own advisor's work, Eng uh, Seng Ho's uh, book, The Graves of Tarim, helped us think about uh, other sort of social and political formations uh, in the Indian Ocean that are just as durable as empire and in some ways much more durable than empire uh, and have just as much depth and breadth to them. Um, but that uh, that intervention um, was in some ways, uh, 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 it captured our attention, but uh, not really reformulated the work that we do in any meaningful way. And so there's still lots of us who are out there who are trying to, uh, to uh, really uh, make sense of, of different Arab groups in the Indian Ocean. Right. And as you said, uh, the imperial dimensions of the Indian Ocean history have typically loomed large, and there you're referring to sort of European imperial competition, right? Like the British Empire sort of dominating the Indian Ocean during the 19th century, and before them, the Portuguese. Yes, yeah, yeah. The Portuguese, Portuguese uh, definitely, to a lesser extent, the Dutch, uh, and then uh, the British. Uh, I mean, East India Company literature, uh, the um, sort of the... Uh, 
high the moment of high imperialism, British Empire in the Indian Ocean, that's really shaped a lot of uh, the conversation around uh, around the Indian Ocean. Of course, there's been uh, a lot of work uh, in, especially I'd say in the past uh, decade or so, that's really uh, turned the conversation around and had us think about uh, diasporic groups in the Indian Ocean. I know that on this program we've had uh, Sebu Haslanian whose work on Armenians in the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, it came at an incredibly incredibly important time uh, and really mm-hmm. uh, transformed the nature of the conversation, along with the work of Eng Seng Ho, uh, Shigata Boz, who worked on Indians in the Indian Ocean, uh, and others uh, have gotten us to think about, for lack of a better term, networks or diaspora groups uh, in in the region. But but yeah, the, uh, the European imperial historiography, or the... Focus on European empires and the Indian Ocean still looms large. The Ottomans, mm-hmm. with the exception of Giancarlo Casale's work, mm-hmm. the Ottomans have not really gotten their due when it comes sure. to Indian Ocean history. Yeah, and that's in part because Ottoman historiography has been so oriented towards Europe uh, until very recently, right? That historians just haven't been looking so much to what's going on in the Indian Ocean. You know, you 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 sort of criticize this imperial history of the Indian Ocean, and yet you're talking about the Omani Empire, right? So clearly the empire you're talking about is different than that image of, say, the British Empire we have in our minds in the in the age of steam. Um, you know, what held this empire together? It, it must have contained a tremendous amount of diversity, but clearly for, you know, connections across such long maritime spaces, there must have been something holding the social world uh, of the Indian Ocean centered on Oman and in, in, in the case of our conversation together. I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, this notion of uh, that, that this notion of Omani Empire brings up. For a very long time, I was I was uh, reluctant to call it an empire. Um, they didn't think of themselves as an empire. Uh, mm-hmm. They never used anything that uh, any term that uh, remotely resembled uh, empire. Uh, they didn't compare themselves to the great empires uh, of the world in the ways that you know the Ottomans did, and yet uh, one has to contend with the fact that this is a group that, at least at different times, uh, attempted to extend their control over vast spaces, mostly coasts, but also the sea lanes that uh, that connect these coasts together. I mean, and it's it's interesting thinking about the Omani Empire precisely because. Uh, in in its shape, uh, in its structures, it resembles uh, what we might think of as the sort of the pre-gunpowder empires of mm-hmm. the Islamic world. Uh, it very sort of very loose confederation of governors uh, and customs masters. Um, the Omanis seem to be very eager to sort of delegate authority. The Omani sultans seem to be very eager to delegate authority uh, to different people in return for the payment of. Uh, of taxes, mm-hmm. uh, essentially, which uh, actually he he never he never uh, received the taxes outright. He'd farm out all the taxes to his customs masters, and what makes it even more interesting is that these customs masters and the principal bankers to the Armani Empire, if we're going to call it that for shorthand, uh, are Indians, mm-hmm. uh, are Gujarati, uh, and more specifically, Kachi uh, Hindus. Um, mm-hmm. And the, these are the people that the Omani sultans rely on for finance uh, in different places. And then when you get to the East African coast, of course, there's a whole range of different actors who are uh, imbricated uh, and entangled in, mm-hmm. in the empire in various ways. Uh, and so it, it, in a sense, it's a, 
it is an empire, one might say. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, but it's not swapping out one European empire for another type of empire. We're right. thinking about uh, a political formation here that is really reflective of the nature of, of uh, Indian Ocean society and sort mm -hmm. of uh, oceanic connections in the in the area. And what was the identity of the dynasty? Like, you've, you've already mentioned the fact that you've got so many people from so many different linguistic and religious groups partaking in this commercial empire. Um, maybe you could explain how uh, the dynasty itself uh, was able to navigate that, because you, you've been referring to it as an, an Arab dynasty right. based and, in the Arabian Peninsula. And I think that that is principally how they identify it. Uh, not just the Omanis, but even the the sort of uh, lower levels, the lower levels of uh, of the government structure, uh, and even these sort of we have many uh, sort of rogue uh, slave traders, ivory traders turned uh, petty sultans in the interior of East Africa, right? Uh, and all of these guys uh, identify as being Arab. Now, mm. how how Arab they are? Do they speak Arabic anymore? <laughs> Do they? Uh, or is it just a, a sort of um, a genealogical notion of what constitutes Arabness? Mm -hmm. it's, well, it's principally the latter. The ties between uh, East Africa and the Arabian Peninsula are never fully severed, of course. There's a constant, and this is what makes it also very interesting to study, is a, uh, the Omani Empire, I mean, the, the movement of sultans and qadlis and other bureaucrats is only one, uh, and I would say one very small vector, of what makes this Omani world in the Indian Ocean. You have tons and tons and tons of, of traders and farmers and uh, shopkeepers and, and things like that that uh, decide, uh, especially in the 19th century, that uh, East Africa is like their, uh, their America, so mm. to speak, uh, and uh, that they're going to go and they're going to make money over there. Um, and of course, over the course of generations, uh, these people all lose any sort of linguistic connection with Arabia. Um, the uh, sultans still correspond in Arabic, uh, but very few others do. Um, Swahili is the principal language. Right. Um, but uh, they move back and forth, uh, and they still imagine themselves as being connected to this broader um, sort of Busa'idi dynasty. And certainly they are. They're sending money back and forth to one another. They're sending gifts back and forth to one another and and uh, it it's very much that and now the the by the mid 1800s with the death of um Said bin Sultan who is the sort of principal architect of the full-fledged one might say Omani empire of the you know early 19th century uh, he dies at sea, shuttling back and forth between Muscat and East Africa. And he shifted the capital of the Omani Empire to Zanzibar in, I think it was 1843. Um, but um, with the, the death of Saeed bin Sultan, uh, a lot of historians take this to be the, the end of the Omani Empire. Because uh, after that, with uh, you know, the, the British intervened in, in matters of succession and essentially divided the empire between Saeed's sons. Uh, one one son got uh, the East African dominions. The other son got uh, got the Omani, got the Omani dominions, and many people take that to be the the sort of the end of the empire, so to speak. Uh, of course, for uh, a full century at least after that, 
we have people who are still constantly moving between uh, Oman and East Africa, not just from the coasts, from the interiors as well, from the interior of Oman and uh, into the interior of East Africa. And here I have to, uh, I have to plug the work of uh, Thomas McDowell, Dodi, mm-hmm. uh, my my friend, um, and his book is coming out any day now. He does a terrific job at sort of detailing these migrations from the interior of Oman to the interior of East Africa, as far inland as uh, as the Congo, as wow. Stanley Falls. I mean, these are these aren't uh, uh, small migrations by any stretch of the imagination. You mentioned that the the predominant language of of the traders and the people involved in the Omani Empire is Swahili, not Arabic. Um, but it's it's worth stating that Swahili is a language that's created out of this empire and out of the trade that's taking place itself, right? The the lexicon of Swahili is heavily uh, influenced by the languages of the Indian Ocean world, Arabic in particular, even though it's a uh, an, a sub-Saharan African language. Yeah, it's a Swahili is definitely a Bantu language. There's no uh, there's no denying that grammatically there's uh, zero similarity between. Uh, Arabic and Swahili. Of course, uh, the uh, the Swahili language has incorporated uh, a lot of vocabulary, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of Arabic vocabulary. Even when one learns Swahili, uh, you learn very quickly that uh, the the bulk of the commercial, administrative, and legal terminology uh, is borrowed from Arabic. Uh, mm-hmm. And so an Arabic speaker has a very easy time learning Swahili in that respect. Um, but you know, Swahili also absorbs uh, elements of Portuguese and Hindi, and uh, right. I mean, it's a it's a very capacious language in that regard. So I don't want to uh, characterize it as being some sort of Arabic derivative language at all. It's not, um, but it it's interesting to to also point out that the term Swahili itself is, of course, an Arabic term. Right. Swahili meaning coastal. Right. Uh, and so the the imprint of Arabic is clearly there. Yeah, and. And and the other languages as well, the Indian Ocean, as you said, but also, uh, you know, it has this incredible geographical spread across that whole coast of East Africa. Um, you know, before the 20th century, uh, most local languages didn't have that kind of geographic reach. It's only certain languages, again, associated with trade and associated with administration and empire that would sort of be understood across such large spaces. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think even uh, the, the sort of the savvy visitor to East Africa today uh, can't help but notice that there's a, uh, a clear difference in... Um, in uh, importance that attached to, to sort of the language and grammatical purity of the language when one moves from uh, the coast inland. Mm-hmm. These coastal communities uh, are very proud of their Swahili uh, and uh, often look down upon the ways in which people from the interior speak mm. Swahili. Yeah. Uh, and they imagine themselves, I mean, the, the political tensions um, between, the, between coastal East Africa, I mean, the coastal provinces and coastal towns and the central governments, which are often uh, based in the interior, um, these political tensions are incredibly real. Uh, right. And uh, the, there are uh, plenty of uh, secessionist movements uh, on the coast. One, one doesn't have to travel far right. or, or spend too much time uh, sipping coffee on the streets of Zanzibar to hear about how frustrated Zanzibaris are with, uh, with the Tanganyikans. Right. And this sort of left-behind coastal elite is also part of that history of Oman in the Indian Ocean world. Uh, 
It's really a fascinating space, and I'm glad that we had this bonus conversation just to put something out there for people to listen to, 15, 20 minutes to, <laughs> yeah. to get a, yeah. a little primer on you know, what is Oman and what was the Indian Ocean world like. So I appreciate you uh, sitting down with us. Uh, for, for our listeners who uh, enjoyed this, remember the full conversation with Fahad Bishar is on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we're talking about his new book out from Cambridge University Press uh, entitled A Sea of Debt. Uh, please join us for that conversation and uh, take care.